Hello, pod pals. Welcome back to another episode of Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that explores the many different roles in the film industry through the lens of the women doing them. This is the 10th episode I've recorded in lockdown, which happened rather quickly. Initially, I was going to do just 10, but I've got a few more guests in the pipeline, and as long as people are happy to chat to me over Zoom, I'm going to keep them coming. My guest this week is Grace Snell, a Biffa-nominated costume designer whose glorious work you'll have no doubt seen in Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, as well as Billy Piper's directorial debut Rare Beasts, and an upcoming film starring Riz Ahmed called Mogul Mowgli. We talk about her path into costume design, mentorship, mental health, getting an agent, and the story behind that glorious gown that Honor Swinton Byrne wears to the opera in The Souvenir. I had a wonderful time talking to Grace about the specificities and responsibilities of the role and definitely got a new appreciation for not just the costumes that you see on screen, but the role that costumes play in an actor's ability to perform a role and just situating you in the world of the film in general. So here it is, episode 60 of Best Girl Grip. like to begin with these podcasts is where you went to university if you did and what you studied. I moved to London when I was 18 um, and I went to Camberwell College of Art to do a foundation there. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to do painting so I went to a fine art college to, to have a go at that and that naturally just it started it sort of turned into sculpture and then it was sculpture on the body and then I started making clothes and um, the tutor just said to me have you thought about costume? And then I went to some open days and, yeah, ended up going to Wimbledon College of Art to do my degree. And I chose to do costume interpretation. And costume interpretation is not designing, it's how you interpret a design. So I learned skills, sewing skills, dyeing skills, tailoring, all those kind of things, which I was trying to be sensible at the time. I thought, I've gained a skill now. I can always be employed. You know, I can do alterations or anything in my spare time so that's why I sort of chose chose to do that really. So it wasn't costume specific to film it was kind of costume in any realm that you could have used that is that correct? Yeah if anything it was sort of geared up more to theatre and it was quite um film and tv were a bit of a taboo subject at my art school and it was um very interesting it wasn't that it was discouraged it was just more encouraged to go into performance work um so that was actually quite good for me because I learned how what fabrics to use for movement um, and what would read on stage um, and those kind of skills. And then you kind of had to whisper to the tutor, oh, I'm actually interested in film. How do I do this? And then you sort of got taken into another room and said, okay, well, these are your options if you want to go down that route. Because I think, yeah, it wasn't, it was, it was weird. It was almost like, not that you're not good enough, but it's kind of like, it's going to be hard. Mm. And, you know, you've got to really crack it if you want to do this and you've got to commit to it. So they almost wanted the students to to volunteer themselves. This is where I want to go. And then they sort of opened up that conversation. Right. Yeah. Almost Hunger Games-esque. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering, do you remember, do you recall a moment where that interest became apparent to you that you were like, yeah, film is something that I want to get into? There, there really wasn't. I hate to say the world sort of fell into it, but I did because I didn't realise it was a job. And I think a lot of my assistants or trainees that come in and work for me also have been like, we found you accidentally or it was suggested to me, you know, and it's not really there, accessible on the internet. This is a job, you can do it. So there wasn't a kind of moment where I thought that is what I want to do. But as soon as I found it, I was like, this is definitely where I belong. So that was that was nice that I had that realisation. I definitely didn't want to go into theatre. That's at the moment. I have amazing respect for theatre, but it's a different world. And I've always loved film. So it kind of made sense. And how did you get your foot in the door? Um, you know, what what was your first kind of gig as a costume trainee? And how did that opportunity come about for you? Yeah, funny one. When I was studying... I'm lucky that Wimbledon College of Art carries a little bit of kudos. You know, if you say you went there, 
everyone does sort of take interest okay this person's serious about costume there was two occasions I was doing some essay work so I was a support, supporting artist work I was an extra that's how I sort of earned my money throughout uni and I'd always go there and just do it you know how how essays are they're just sitting on the dining bus waiting to be called so I'd always take my sewing with me and I'd be doing it on the bus and there was one advert that I got booked for and I think it was a three or four day shoot and we got sent a brief because sometimes you do get sent briefs as an extra to bring mm. any clothes that are relevant and it was 1920s clothes and I thought okay this is this is interesting so mm. I I went to town I packed my bag full of all the things I had. I had amazing, historically accurate pieces and I, and I just got really excited. So when the costume designer came around and she looked at all our bags and she was picking out, she suddenly realised, okay, this girl's got an eye for costume. She put me in all my own clothes and... Um, the next day I sort of plucked up the courage and I remember this actually it's so funny I hand typed a business card up on my typewriter because I was obsessed with my typewriter at the time so I said Grace Snell costume assisting and my number and I just handed it to her and I think at the time I just didn't really think about the consequences I just thought I want to do this I'm going to do it but now I think if an extra did that to me and handed that, that's quite bold, right? Mm. Um, and she, she just said, absolutely. Do you want to come on board? I've got a BBC drama next week for two weeks. You could be um, a trainee for it. So I had a car, so I was really lucky. I could drive us around. And I worked with her for, for two weeks. This was um, Susie Harmon, who's an incredible costume designer. She, mm. you know, she just won the Biffa um, for Best Costume Design yeah, last that- year. Um, David Copperfield, I David Copperfield yeah. yeah. And she's a fan, you know, she was fantastic. She was so encouraging. And we were walking around in Liberty buying some bits and bobs. And one of her close friends called her and said, Oh, I'm looking for a trainee on a film. Um, do you know anyone? And she was like, Well, I'm with someone right now. I'll ask her. <laughs> um, and that film was Prometheus. So I then got to be a costume trainee on Prometheus. But at the time, I was still studying at uni. So I didn't tell anybody. And then in my summer holidays, I went and I went and um, assisted on that. So incredible! That goes yeah. to show that sometimes you just you have to be kind of a bit bold and uh, yeah, because it was obviously kind of a memorable move for you to do that. Um, oh, that's that's it. I think that I didn't have any sort of preconceived idea. I didn't know what I was asking to do. I just thought I want to do this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was working on Prometheus, a bit of a baptism by fire. Did you kind of really get thrown <laughs> into the deep end with that experience? Yeah, that really was because it was such a a massive costume department. And I think now with a bit more experience under my belt, I can really see just how big that department was. You know, they had the tailors, they had the costume props, they had the designing, they had the standbys. Um, And at the time I was just a trainee. So I was, Mm -hmm. you know, making teas, coffees, helping everyone with bits and bobs. And I had so much respect for Janty. I've loved her work. Janty Gates, the costume designer for it. And I um, loved her work for ages and also loved Ridley Scott. So I was just happy to be there. And so, yeah, I sort of got more into the costume prop world. So I got got sort of taught how to do circuits on costumes, like electrical boards. And and it was just so exciting. And And I was just so happy to be there that I would take on anything. So I was so up for it. Mm. I think so that enthusiasm kept throughout and then Janty actually you know contacted me afterwards to do a few more projects with her so that was nice and is it kind of de rigueur to sort of learn all the different roles in the costume department or if you're training to be a costume designer there's sort of a set path did you kind of know what steps to follow to get there I didn't know what steps I mean I used my common sense on IMDb and sort of Mm. saw what the roles are, I can see you're a trainee and then you're a junior. And, and I think at that point, there's a very specific divide, which is if you want to be making the clothes or if you want to be designing the clothes. Obviously, I'm being quite broad with this. There's obviously a lot more elements to each department, but I knew that designing was more where I wanted to go. And what was your first official job as a costume designer? You know, and at what point did you start handing out the business card that said Grace Snell costume designer? <laughs> I know it's funny because I do encourage my assistants now to assist for longer than I did or like be a trainee for longer just so you have a little bit more experience in other areas. But I, I was so opinionated and had such, I couldn't close my mouth. I just had such an opinion on something if I thought it didn't work that I soon realized, actually, this is a bit of out, out of line. I'm sort of stepping above my job role and I probably should start to be doing my own designing. So I, I was assisting some great costume designers in commercials as well. And I think 
when you get a good relationship with a costume designer, they're happy to share. So if projects came in that perhaps were a bit too low budget for them or weren't quite their aesthetic, you get past those as an assistant. So I got past a couple of very small jobs. And so, you know, it was music videos. I think I mainly started in and I'd actually just graduated from uni. I was on a bit of a European holiday and then I got a call saying, can you design a music video next week? So I flew back and thought, yeah, I'm up for it. I'm going to do it. So I was lucky that I designed. I don't want to throw the word luck around too much because there is a lot of hard work that went there. But I did. I think I played it the right way where I managed to assist throughout my degree. And then when I graduated, I could then start with the smaller projects as a designer and still assist on the larger projects. Mm. So I did that for about a year. And then after that, I just thought I'm going to I'm going to just take the jump. I found that really interesting what you just said there about perhaps being too outspoken. It's not something I've considered before that when you're assisting, you're sort of yes. you're having to perhaps uh, defer to someone else's aesthetic. Yeah. Is that quite was that quite a tricky balance to sort of learn? And how did you navigate that? It is hard because when you're so creatively minded, you do sort of, you have your strong opinions, you know what you think works. And I think when you're an assistant, if you haven't worked with that designer before, you have to not, I don't want to say hold your tongue because I'd hate to tell anyone that works for me to hold their tongue, but you have to consider hang on a minute, that designer has been through a process herself. She knows when she needs to speak up and when she needs to say something. I think in fittings, it's a really good example. I do encourage my assistants to come into my fittings with me to see how that works. And sometimes an assistant might say, oh, that doesn't work. And I've got the director in the room and the actor in the room. And so it's hard because you want to encourage and support a young mind, but you also have to think about, okay, well, Grace is not saying that for a particular reason there's a thought process there so I just make sure that I, I talk to them afterwards and I explain okay so in this situation you do have to be quiet and you have to just listen and write notes and then afterwards you and I can have that chat but when we've got the director or the actor in the room we do have to be a little bit more careful with what we say. And I'm wondering, you know, working on music videos and then you sort of graduated doing shorts, um, you know, mm. Eva Riley's Diagnosis you worked on yeah. and, and, and Work, which is a short film I love by Neil Carrier. Did that sort of give you the confidence to then make the leap to features or did that still feel like a really kind of big transition? It did feel like a big transition. I think I got my agent at that point. Right. So I was really lucky that I had a wealth of knowledge from an agency that regularly see scripts and regularly work with heads of department and and have good relationships with producers. So I sort of leaned to them for guidance on where they thought I could possibly go with my career. Mm. Short films are an absolutely fantastic way of getting to grips with how real films, I say real films and I mean feature length films, work and I still do short films to this day because I absolutely love the short burst you get and also the emerging talent you get to work with in short films and I think I'll continue to do short films if they come up for the rest of my career because they don't stop when you go into feature length but feature length is a different ball game and there's a lot more at stake and there's a lot more money at stake and when more money comes into it there are more people to make those decisions and more people to get approval from so it did feel like a jump but I was really ready for it and because I had my agent's backing I felt like that was the next right step for me. Was getting an agent serendipitous were you looking for that or yeah how did how did representation come to you? I didn't know you could get an agent. Well, I knew that the big Oscar winners had the agents and I always associate agents with LA and um, <laughs> that kind of thing, which is really stupid to think about it. But I'd done a massive commercial for the BBC at the mm. time and worked with some fantastic artists. And I think that body of work was so big that a few agents did take note of me. I was 23 at the time. I was very mm. young. And obviously, I think when you're so young, you're more attractive to an agent because they think okay well we can help you we know where where you should go so I got contacted and it was Wizzo and they were fantastic and Lucy Price there she just she was so encouraging and it's so it's so nice because as an HOD you you are a bit of a lone wolf you don't really have anybody to turn to to say am I making the right decision is this the right script I mean you do have your peers you have other people you can talk to but with an agent you've just got someone that's got your back and also your best interests Mm. So that was a that was a good decision for me, I think, to have that just as I entered the feature film world, because it was a little bit foreign to me. 
Absolutely. And speaking of that support, did you have perhaps any other costume designers that you kind of looked to for guidance or any mentors? Yes, so I did stay in touch with costume designers I assisted. Mentors, I definitely think it's, for me, it was an agent. And then it's striking up relationships with emerging directors and actors. And I would say that Billy Piper, for example, is a, a really great example of how a mentor working relationship has worked because I did a short film, um, Beast, directed by Leonor Lonsdale. Billy was our lead actress in that, and we just got on so well, and and we stayed in touch after that film. And then when it came to her feature-length film that she'd written, Rare Beasts, she did reach out. And we just struck up such a great relationship that I could be so honest, and I could say, oh, how, how would you like me to work this out? What should we do? And it was just such a great relationship. And then now, I've just finished designing her new Sky Atlantic TV show, because she she had that trust in me and she knew how I worked Mm. um so it's kind of thinking about all the relationships you start with at the beginning of your career you all grow together um and I know how experienced Billy is so I completely trust her yeah so that's that's good I'd say that she's actually one of my mentors probably yeah I like that concept as well that it's not necessarily perhaps the person in your career path or that's doing exactly the same thing as you that might provide um that insight or that relationship that will be beneficial later on it's sort of it can come from anywhere and and also proof yeah. that you should be perhaps nice to everyone and you know that the, yeah, whole, exactly. the whole set is someone that you should be interacting with yeah, I'd love exactly. to now do a deep dive into the the nitty-gritty of uh the role of costume designing and and what that entails so it would be good to first off talk about how you describe the role and what you feel like your priority is when you're performing it. It's it's a funny one because only really this year and especially now in lockdown have I really sat back and thought about my responsibility as a costume designer mm. and and also like my responsibility for who I hire and the mental health and well-being of my team because I am looked up to as a head of department because I think Everything happened in my career quite quickly. I was moving very fast. Jobs were coming in. I've now managed to stop and think, okay, actually, I'm now employing a bigger team, bigger budgets, and I have a responsibility to think about how do I hire my team and how do I educate my team and how do I make sure they feel safe and that I'm setting a good example. You know, you think as an HOD, yes, you need to set examples of great designing and a great work ethic, but you also need to set example about care and how and how you look out for each other and you know example is you know including more BAME in the hiring process more BAME employees I take responsibility now for making sure that how I hire my team is open to anybody um, not just word of mouth you know I hate the word word of mouth and I hate the the fact that I've hired through a person recommending somebody and maybe I haven't let anybody else in because it's been so fast-paced I'm just trying to crew up as quickly as possible yeah more is trying to be you know a head of a department. At what point do you come on board a project Um, and what are the factors that influence your decision to work on something? You do get, you normally get a whispering, especially with an agent. I sort of know what's happening or an existing relationship with an actor or with a director or producer. You get whispers. Um, But I normally get sent a script maybe a month before the pre-production might start. And then um, pre-production, depending on how big the project can be, three weeks to six weeks. And how I choose a project I think that that now I have a bit of a moral obligation to choose projects that I believe in, especially with my commercial work, um, make sure I represent products that I want out there, that I'm not just selling myself. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that I trust the producer. I trust the funding body, whether that's BFI or Creative England. I trust their message. So, yeah, I think it's it's not rush. I try not to rush into something. I try and see what other actors have signed on board to the project or um, the previous worker directors done, try and have an early conversation with them um, to see what, what they're about and perhaps where they want to take the project, if they've got an idea about what festivals they want to take it to, where do they see it going. So there's a lot more with experience now. There's a lot more things I take into consideration rather than just saying yes to the first script that comes on my table. And I mean, when, when something's only got three weeks of pre-production, where are you even beginning? You know, what's the first step you take? That's quite a short amount of time, it appears to me, to sort of get everything together. So perhaps take me through what that process looks like. 
Yeah, so three weeks is, yeah, not much time, but I always say, and my supervisor, Kirsty, always laughs at me, that anything can be done in 24 hours. Um, <laughs> it's such a fast-paced industry. That's just the pace we're at. So I'll be, I'll be researching, I'll be mood boarding, but then I'll also probably be pre-buying sorting or searching for things that I'm putting in my mood board to make sure that we can just lift off straight away and it will be as many chats as I can but the director is going to be so busy push the producer to make sure that you've got your allocated time with your director whether that's emails or chats or little whatsapp messages just constantly chatting constantly trying to jump on the to some is a is a skill in itself because mm-hmm. you're going to be you know you're going to have your own opinions on the script you're going to see where you want it to go but at the end of the day, it is the director's vision. So you just have to keep making sure, checking in that you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And then fittings normally happen just before filming. I mean, that's why I just tend such broad research. I'm lucky that I've got a wealth of stock now that I can delve into um, and pull out stuff that I'm you know, pre-own. I also call up the actors to see what clothes they have. I think that's a great resource. Also encouraging us to just be using what we already have. The supervisors and the assistants, they normally come on two weeks. You normally get a one week ahead or two weeks ahead. So you're kind of trying to break down the script at the same time. Yeah, it's all systems go, but just write it down. You know, lots and lots of lists. I mean, that that makes me think, yeah, where's your inspiration coming from and how are you keeping track? Like, do you have a journal? Like you mentioned that you use mood boards. What are you using to collate those? Yeah, talk me through the kind of visual side of it. Yeah. So visuals, visuals is, is a funny one because I know so many people have, have different ways of doing it. But I have a great library now of books. So for my meetings, I, I, I do like working on the screen. You know, I do my keynote mood boards um, as well. But I also like bringing books or magazines in um, because I know that everybody responds really well to looking at something physically. Mm-hmm. So I really encourage that. I've bought, I mean, I've bought trolleys to meetings with 10 books in them because it's nice to lay them all out on the table and you can, you can, you can see, see everything like that. Yeah. I'll go through my books. So my starting point will be, what do I personally have already? So my books or my photos or my friend's photos with permission or Pinterest or amazing archive, photo archives online. Mm. And then I just do a really broad, sweet mood board. And then you start honing in when you get feedback. If I do have time, I'll try and go go out. I do a lot of people watching. So for verses, I got me and my assistant. This is so funny. So I live near Brixton. So I got me and my assistants outside the O2 Academy after a Stormzy gig. And we were just asking everybody, can we take a photo? Tell me where you've got your clothes. And started doing this big sort of... This kind of survey about um, what everyone was wearing because it was relevant to, to the feature film I was doing. And and so I sort of printed off all those photos and we also went to art colleges. So I went to Central St. Martins, we sat out there, we asked to take photos um, and then you print them all out. And, and you know, that works for contemporary films, but mm-hmm. um, it's quite fun. Yeah, that sounds yeah, very, <laughs> and I guess a good way to sort of, yeah, get something that's lived in as well. That like you're not exactly. You're, you're actually seeing how people are wearing the clothes. I imagine how that people sort of wear thing. clothes. Yeah. Exactly, like the zeitgeist. It's like what's in fashion at the moment. What are people using? What brands do people mm. like? What colours? What silhouettes is everyone wearing? So yeah, and it's 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 really important that you don't isolate yourself just by seeing what's online. I think there's because we have to work so fast. There's a tendency just to drag and drop mm. Google images into mood boards, but actually sometimes sitting in your cafe and just watching what people wear is is actually more more relevant. Yeah, that's so true. And when you talk about pre-buying, where are you going to source those clothes? So yeah, so with the new kind of my new way of trying to work is to try and buy as little as possible. Um, so I'll go to existing stock and then I'll do charity shops. So I think for the souvenir, 80, 80 or 70, yeah, 70, 80% of those clothes were charity shop clothes mm. um, because they've already got a story. You know, they're already a bit lived in, um, a bit worn in. And yeah, it's quite nice to give back to charity, I think, because of how much money is in the film industry. It's nice to buy from, from charity shops rather than spending your money in Primark. 
Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, we'll come on to the souvenir because um, I love that film and there's a lot that I kind of want to, to ask you about. But staying on, on yeah, the nitty gritty of the role, how do you decide that um, something, a piece of clothing is going to work within, you know, the world of the film? Because often, often, you know, say you pick something off of a rack in a charity shop, it might look good to you, but perhaps it doesn't work on the actor. You know, is that happening in fittings? And, and how did you learn to trust that instinct? Yeah, that's, it's a hard one. I have been asked that before and it's, it's, it's a hard question because it's about that instinct I had when I was assisting that I couldn't mm. speak my mind. You know, I was worried about speaking my mind because I do have such a strong instinct with if things will work or not. And if I buy something, sometimes I'll just, I sort of allocate a tiny bit of money to buying items that are called mood board items. So they'll be the general vibe of, of a film. So I'll, you know, it might be some dresses, some shoes, some jeans. And when you start buying and you start having these clothes and holding them, then you, then you, then it sort of grows and you can, you kind of know. And I think you do have to, I've said about don't buy, 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 but if it's charity shops, I think we can get away with it. You kind of overbuy in charity shops because mm-hmm. in my head, I'm going to donate them back afterwards if they're not used. So, and I've also got a couple of good relationships with managers at charity shops that do let me borrow. So that's kind of good is with working within your community to see mm-hmm. if managers are up for that because there's one particular charity shop in the town I work in and I spend thousands there a year. So they're very up for helping me and will even keep things aside for me. In the fitting is where everything, well, there's two points here. In a fitting, everybody likes to say it's where the character comes to life. Me, it's just a stepping stone because I think the character comes to life when you start filming personally um, and things change and, you know, you might have filmed a couple of scenes and then you have to go back out again and buy some more because you're watching how the actor's getting to grips with that character and how the director's suddenly realising who that character is. And you have to be adaptable and not so rigid as in like, okay, well, we fitted that whole outfit in the fitting in fitting one and that has to be what we use. And kind of have be a bit more fluid because I know that if I've spent some money in charity shops and I've got a couple of outfits there, they don't necessarily have to be for the lead actor. I can put them on supporting cast because I know I like those clothes. I know mm. those clothes tell a story. Yeah, I suppose it's it's having a frame of reference, but perhaps not being glued to the yeah, exactly. Of like this has to fit this person. Yeah, I think that's it. Is if you feel like you believe the clothes you're buying mm. and you know that's a character, then you know, you've banked it in a way. You can use that again for a new cast member that comes on board or supporting cast. And I'm wondering what your definition of success is within this job. You know, where does the the greatest pleasure of doing this job come from? I think now it's respect from my peers. If a costume designer tells me I've done a good job, then that's when I truly think, okay, I've done a good job because nobody knows how hard our job is until Mm. you're doing it. Um, And also, you know, for the souvenir, I had emails from production designers, DOPs, saying how much they loved the costume. So I think it's recognition within the industry um, that for me is, is a sign of success. Mm. I mean that's a perfect time to talk about the souvenir because it is it has exquisite designers across the board um costume included um given that it's it feels to me like a very specific era and milieu like it's the 80s but it feels like a very niche part of the 80s um where did you begin in the research process for that so yes so Joanna Hogg was very generous in sharing her personal photos from the era which was a great starting point for me. I then looked at um, photographers around the time that were maybe in those social circles or who photographed those social circles. We've got like Derek Ridges for example um, and then I'd look at magazines of the time. I was very careful when designing the 80s there were so many red flags designing the 80s that I didn't want it to scream gold lame um, and, you know, all the, that, that come with the cliche of the fancy dress 1980s party. So I just went straight to the source. It was very first hand. So I think I ordered loads of Face magazine, Vogue, seeing what aspirations, yeah, seeing what aspirations students of that time were having, what designers they they look to so I was um, I interviewed Joanna um, asking her questions about specifically about fashion and what she liked to wear um, when she was dressing up or when she was at home or when she was directing at the time and I think that was very important to me that I got first-hand counts Mm -hmm. um, rather than googling 1980s (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't think you would have got the texture of no, exactly. Yeah, and I think what's important to remember when you design a period film is you're still going to have a bit of a hangover of the 1970s, so you shouldn't isolate your research um, as the 1980s. And I think some characters, for example, Julie's Mm -hmm. mum, Rosalind, played by Tilda Swinton, she still had her 1960s style head on when she when she chose clothing so make sure you know the you know the age that you're designing for as well um so I think that you kind of have to broadly design around and think about okay what fashions are about to emerge from the late 80s and early 90s and some people will have been forward thinking and knowing what's going to come so yeah I think that's that's how I went about doing that do you always know what act's going to play the character at that stage? So do you often choose pieces or design pieces with them in mind? Or is it, again, more flexible than that? Yeah, I think it's it's a lot more flexible with that. Sometimes you don't get cast or cast drop out and you don't mm. know. So you want to make sure that you're still keeping it open. But for me, in the way that I personally design, I love to have the actor involved. And we knew that Tilda would be playing the role. So I also spoke about Tilda and maybe experiences like her mother what her mother wore at the time and I I think that that relationship is really important to delve into their personal memories as well and you know you treat that knowledge like gold they're also confiding in you so that's that's a lovely gift to have been given um, photos of family members or friends but I think that's that's how with her character I went about designing her character but sometimes you just don't know so you have to keep it a bit more open it kind of comes back to what you're saying when a lot of actors say that when they try on the costumes for the first time, that's when the character comes alive to them. So it's obviously, you know, it's such an important part of the process for them that it's probably good to to involve them in it as well. Um, does that feel like a bit of pressure and responsibility as well? Yeah, it, it does. But I think also you just don't panic. If you don't get it right in the first fitting, you don't get it right. Mm-hmm. I also value nose as much as, you know, as useful as yeses. So you're not going to turn up somewhere and get it right straight away. I think everyone puts that pressure on themselves with every walk of life. You're supposed to walk into a situation and know exactly how to handle it. But I think with that character, we Tilda didn't have much time to have fittings. So they were very, very close to when she was filming. So I think the pressure for me, I think there was a couple of sleepless nights. Not that I didn't trust in myself that I'd get it right, just that I, you know, the anxieties of have I got enough and could I have done better? I think I knew what I had was good, but could I have done better? But I was, I was very happy with how, with how that came about, finding that character. And can we also talk a little bit about your role on set? You know, are you present during the shoot? Are you kind of making alterations or adjustments or seeing how the costumes look on camera? What's, yeah, what's your role like during the actual filming stage? Okay, so I think it depends from film to film. And when you're designing a TV series, for example, it's almost impossible to be on set all the time because you're having to design the new roles that are coming up for the new episodes. Mm. But with Joanna Hogg, we sort of found out what we were filming the morning of the day. So I had to be around and I wanted to be around. And I think the sets for Joanna's sets were so um, minimal crew um, and the HODs were asked to be present that you respect that process and you adapt and if that's if that's how that's going to be I'll be on set making sure that the lead actress is comfortable and I'll have to then employ a buyer who will then go out shopping for the next characters that are coming up and then you just have to grab moments hours at a time to go shopping when you can but I do personally like being on set because I always write it in my my diary when I'm working be on set because that is the moment you've been waiting for what is actually being filmed on camera that Mm. is what all the hard work is what is in front of that camera so I'm always there to establish every single new costume but then I have a fantastic team that I then trust who will then go on to do the continuity and the continued days in that costume but I always make sure that I'm there to we say set the costume so that that is exactly how I'd like it to be worn. Sleeves rolled up, sleeves rolled down, necklace in, necklace out, just anything like that. And also it's your first time seeing your character in front of the production design, mostly. You know, you think, oh gosh, that sofa, is that going to go with that sofa? Is that going to go with the colour of the wallpaper? All those things. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question about that on, on Rare Beasts, but before we get onto it, I'd love to talk about that absolutely gorgeous pewter dress that Honor wears in kind of that, that very significant moment. Um, how did that come together? Talk me through that. 
Yeah, that's a bit of a mad one. I think <laughs> me, and Joanna, me and Joanna laugh about it still because we knew there was going to be a trip to Venice. So we did know. This was, I think, the bit of information we were given because obviously mm. tickets needed to be bought and we needed to get our passports ready. So we knew we were going to Venice to film a few scenes. I'd already planned with Joanna what we were going to take to Venice and we had the amazing suit, the silver suit, um, the Shangtung silk suit. Um, so we knew that that was going. And then I get an email or a call from Joanna saying, I kind of would like this amazing gown. And mm. you kind of think, oh my goodness, this is, this is my job. This is what I'm here for. I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> so I've got 10 days, 10 mm. days to get this couture opera gown ready. And I absolutely thrive off adrenaline and pressure. And that's how I like working. So I think maybe other people in my situation would have just, you know, maybe gone to the producer and said that you can't do it because that is such a feat that we managed to do it. So I started drawing, you know, got my references. I've got a lot of Charles James references of his couture gowns. I started sketching. And while I was sketching, I was calling up um, couturier makers, you know, who mm. can do this. And I thought, yeah, I'll go for Seal, who, you know, she's done the Phantom Thread and his incredible costume maker. So I, I got her on board, even though I didn't have a design yet. <laughs> um, and then we were filming in Norfolk. So how am I going to get this amazing silk? Mm. So then you hire a buyer to go to the costume, you know, the fabric um, houses to look for this particular silk. And I was so specific about the colour. I wanted it to be in the same palette as her suit that she wears on the train. And I also knew it would be filmed at night. So I wanted it to look like moonlight. I um, wanted it to be reflective. So I was very specific. I wanted it to be two-tone. And so you think about these poor people that get cool being like, can you go and find this really specific colour? Uh, <laughs> but I was on FaceTime and we were looking. And so I ordered it all on FaceTime. And then we had to grab honour at the end of the day after a long shoot day. We were having fittings in the night um, to get it all fitted. That's how it came about. It was it was an amaze. It was amazing. So when we got when I when I got on the plane, I pretended it was a wedding dress because I thought that would have more kudos. People would respect you if you're camera. <laughs> and even the lady went, "Oh, the the air stewardess said, oh, let me get you a separate seat.' So I got a separate seat for it to travel on the airplane with me. We didn't pay for the extra seat, um, <laughs> so that to had the gown sitting with me. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was it. Was an amazing moment, and I think I know we don't see too much of it in the film, but it's just it's just so magical. It's mm -hmm. like dreamlike. So, yeah. In a way, that's testament to the effect it had. Like for me, that's such a memorable moment in the film. And, you know, mm. comparable to its screen time, the fact that it stands out. Was that a special moment yeah. for you seeing it, you know, within the context of the film as well? Yeah, it, re it really, really was. It did exactly mm. what it needed to do. It was a moment of dreamlike paradise, of, but it's slightly tainted by sadness. So it, I think it, mm. it, I'm so happy with it. Yeah. That kind of actually thinking about it now sort of works for that that duality as well. The fact you know it's it's not white like a wedding dress, and there's no. yeah, there's something actually quite muted and sad about that shade actually. Yeah. And as a counterpoint, I mean, you spoke earlier that you worked on Billy Piper's directorial debut, Rare Beasts, and I'm wondering, in comparison to working on a period piece like The Souvenir, what working on a contemporary piece is like. Um, but also you mentioned there that the costumes when you're on set is the first time they encounter the production design. Um, and I know there's a really eclectic and vivid production design to that film. So perhaps talk me through making choices uh, in that context as well for that film. Yeah, I think um, Sarah, the production designer, and me have got a great relationship. We'd actually already worked together before. Okay. Um, so we already had a really, really great relationship. But that mm. film was so fast. Decisions had to be made so quickly that we often didn't even get a chance to, to talk to each other. But just like the most coincidental moment in the film when Mandy, um, Billy's character, has run back from Spain and comes into her mum's bedroom and she's wearing this dress that, because obviously Billy was pregnant at the time, we had right. to disguise the pregnancy. So I had to chop up 10 different dresses to get this kind of bizarre frill that gave an optical illusion that she wasn't pregnant. And we'd match the colours. So the room was exactly the same colours as the dress. And I think those moments you just think, wow, you really are on the same page as some people without even realising. And that's, that's such a lovely, lovely moment. But I think when me and Billy talked about my designing for that, it was, it, we wanted it to be sort of overwhelm the audience with colour so it was kind of this refreshing bright palette 
happy, you're sort of lulled into this false sense of security where it's a happy rom-com musical, it's bright and vivid and fun, a bit naive, and that absolutely contrasts with the anti-rom-com script that's got a much more of a darker meaning. Um, so the audience kind of feels, oh, okay, I thought I was watching something. Well, actually, it's hitting me harder because it's something mm. completely different. And I just, when I was shopping for that, I'd go into the charity shop and just find the most beautiful, bright dresses I could find. Because with the, you know, the scene in um, Alexander Palace when we have all women representing all women, you know, and they had to look like all different walks of life. And I wanted them to look really bright and overwhelm our central lead male character, basically. And yeah, I took inspiration from. I've said this, Pina Bausch dances and um, the young girls of Rochefort by Jacques Demi in 1960s. It's kind of like this 1960s musical where it's these saturated pastel colours. Mm. So for me, I think I went in with a lot of mood boards that Sarah could see and everyone could see that I was really going to it. And I think there was a few moments where people, I mean, people were a bit like, wow, really they're a bit mad. They're a bit, I was like, yeah, women, women can be mad. This is just, we're all seeing just how, how, yeah, I love that scene. Yeah. I wish mm. that bit more in there, but yeah, I love that scene. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, women shouldn't have to dull themselves for, yeah. for expectation as well. I think that, yeah, that was it. It was kind of just like, we're bright, we're here. This is who we are and we're speaking our mind. And I think it's such a powerful scene in the film. Um, mm. And it's, yeah, it's so not what you expect. But that was always our plan all along was to completely contrast contrast the subject, the narrative of the film by making everybody think we're in this brightly coloured musical. It just occurred to me there, is, is that sometimes a harder part of the job that you'll work on costumes that you don't know are necessarily going to end up in the film? Or do you just see it as being part of the ecosystem? And, and if it helped yeah. tell the story on that day, it's, you know, it's fine. It is what it is. That's it. I think for me, making a film... Is a part is is you know it, the the filmmaking is for me a part of watching the film. The experiences that I've had making a film um, are just as important as watching the finished product. And if I've inspired a few people around me while making the film, then that's to me is that's fine. I don't necessarily have to have the crowds that watch the film. And I think I always say to myself is never get precious about anything. It's all part of the process. If something's culled or cut from it or vetoed, it's part of it. So don't ever get precious about anything. And do you consider yourself as, as a designer to have a particular style um, that's perhaps unique to you? Or is it more about shape-shifting to the needs of the project? I think this is this is a hard one because as costume designers, we have to shape. We have to work with different people a lot of the time so we have to be adaptable but I think it's also denying yourself as a creative if you say that you can completely wipe your aesthetic identity mm. every time you design something I think I bring my aesthetic I still don't know what that is you know you could look view my work on my website and you can't connect the dots but it's still my aesthetic and what I think works but it's just how that works with a director as well and it's 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 what you make in it's how you come to the come can't explain it it's how it's the end product that you've both yeah (laughs) I'm thinking of it like you know when um in primary school you're taught how to like mix colors I'm gonna get this wrong but it's exactly how I said (laughs) that is what I just said right when I was rehearsing this interview with my mum I described it I was like trying my mum was helping me because I was like I've forgotten how to talk about my job since being (laughs) locked down and I said what it is directors bring in blue you're bringing yellow you're gonna make green but the director might bring dark blue and you're going to bring bright yellow. You're going to make a different shade, right? Yeah. You get it. Yeah, that's, that's literally a, what I was thinking. And you're always but thinking. that is what I just said to my mum. Let's get my mum in here because she didn't understand it. She was like, do not use that analogy because you will not make sense. <laughs> here we go. We're, we're on the same wavelength. Yeah, yeah. That, that's how it is. Is that, you know, you know, you bring in yellow to the table, <laughs> but it's whether it's a dark yellow or a light yellow. Um, love that. <laughs> and do you have in mind uh, a particular era or, or, you know, a time period that you're really keen to design for? I'm re- I really don't. I think that that is the most common question a costume designer gets asked mm. because 
a lot of people associate the job with an aesthetic, right? The 1980s, 1930s, 1940s. But for me, it's really script-led. It's really, I want to get a really incredible character. And that, mm. I mean, I love elements of all eras. I really, really do. And I would be happy to do anything as long as I love the script. Yeah, that's really true, actually, because, yeah, as we as we spoke about, it's about how the character wears the clothes as well, as much as about the context yeah. in which they're wearing them. That's it. It's weird. It's like, would you ask a director, do you have a, a peer, time period you want to work in? Mm-hmm. And they probably would say no, mm-hmm. right, I think, because they'd be like, no, I just want a good script, I think. Mm. I don't know. Maybe Maybe there are people that, but I do like futuristic. <laughs> Yeah, I guess just all barriers you can get. Yeah. Well, it's weird. It's like with the future or dystopia future, yeah. nothing's been written. You've got no textbook. I think mm. when you, you know, I often have this little debate with people when you design, say, Victorian costumes, you're slightly confined to how far you go um, because you have history. Mm. as one of the biggest weights on your decision right you have what was actually correct if you've got a director that says you know let's throw the textbook out the table and let's think about actually what we could do then Mm. then that's great if you get a director that's up for changing a few things but other than that you are led by history and what's there already and on that notion of perhaps the myth that it's a very aesthetic driven job what perhaps are some of the other skills um required to do your job well you know beyond having the eye and being able to to find good costumes and design good costumes yeah I think patience poker face (laughs) um and what I found more and more with my job is how I have to be a support system for an actor it's very funny because we spend so much time with the actors. Well, we used to see what happens now after lockdown, but how getting them dressed in the morning, being there for fitting, seeing them when they've just woken up, seeing them at the end of the day, seeing them through all the moods that you are often, you know, a support system if they're having a problem or it's kind Mm. of, it's that sensitivity to this is a person. And I think you, you know, you do have to check in with yourself. A lot of people are so excited when I tell them who I work with about the celebrity of it, but actually the people, same problems might be going through divorce, might have a drinking problem, might be moving house, you know, might be having a baby All you know, life things. Right. Mm. So it's kind of just actually stepping back and thinking about if this is a family member or if this is a friend, how would I help them? Um, so I think that part of my job role is is to have that sensitivity Um, I'm much more aware of mental health now so I try and make sure my team and how when I say much more aware of mental health I mean and how much on a daily daily level in work it is creeping in because Mm -hmm. of the long hours we have to do it's it's making sure that your team feels safe if there's a problem they can come to you if you know if there is any discrimination on set that they can come to you and your responsibility is how do we make this better for you so I think it's stepping up it's stepping up you're more than just clothes that really resonates with Something I had recently, I interviewed a makeup artist and she, she sort of had a, a very similar take on it, which is that you're often, in regard to actors, which is that you're often the last person that they see before they sort of go on set and do that character. So you're in a way responsible for instilling confidence in them and particularly with clothes, which is where so many of us derive our confidence. It's sort of, yeah, you are very much responsible for enabling them perhaps to do their job. Exactly. I mean, you know, you go on a night out with your friends and you all look at each other and say, do I look all right? You know, should I wear this tonight? Should I wear that tonight? I'm feeling really shit. Should I, should I change my outfit? And it's that same, it's that just, it's humanising, even if that's the right word. I completely agree. And do you have a, a favourite part of the job, something that you enjoy most about it? I think I really enjoy the moment of trust, is getting trust. Mm. Um, when you're respected and someone trusts your opinion I think that that is so affirming and um yeah because every there's there's great parts to all the job I absolutely love my job and I wouldn't do it I work such crazy hours I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it but yeah when you do get that trust that's a really great feeling and is there something that perhaps you'd wish you'd learned earlier in your career or something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career well I'm still learning 
still finding out stuff now. I just ask more questions, take my time, ask a bit more of the practical questions. How much are you getting paid? What's the budget for this? I always openly talk about how much I'm getting paid. It's such a taboo subject. And I think everyone should know how much is how much everyone's getting paid in a department. Mm. Just because why is no one talking about this? So yeah, I think I'd just be a lot more um, inquisitive. Can I ask then, what is the average salary for a costume designer per film? Yeah, per film, I think, so if you're doing a low to mid budget, which is maybe what I'm on, you can be on 1,800 roughly, I think 1,800 a week. The good thing about the souvenir is all HODs were on part, the part one, I think this is correct. So we were all on 2,000 a week. So that was a good deal. But yeah, so I think for mid to low budget, you're looking at 1,600 to 1,800 a week for a costume designer. Um, and then you can get something called a box fee, which is you might get £100 a week. So you're hiring out your equipment and stationery. And if I've got a printer and my laptop costs, so that's all included in your box fee. Um, and then you might get petrol allowance, which might be £50 a week because you're driving around everywhere. And if you don't have an agent, definitely ask other costume designers what's the going rate and what, what's going on but Beck 2 have got great examples of 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 where you can go to for guidance on finances join Beck 2 if you need financial advice but I think with with the short films and the low budget films that's when you you do have to cut deals you know my first feature film I think it was a thousand pounds a week I was on so those are the things that sometimes you have to make a little bit of an allowance for absolutely that's thank you for sharing that with me and finally uh i can't believe how quickly this has gone um, but <laughs> is there a film that you uh, you've seen recently uh, it can be an old release um short or feature length from a woman director that you think is an undervalued gem i've been watching i don't know if you've been watching homemade on netflix yeah the short film I'm yeah, the yeah. Short film. Yeah, so i was just loving right so i could only watch it in little bits i mean oh. there's for those who don't know it's 17 short films that have been recorded all over the world in lockdown. I have to watch them in stages because they're emotionally a bit draining because it's just hitting home just how much we've been through in this pandemic. But yeah, the Gurinder Chadha one, which I personally got quite upset about. Just yeah, because I haven't seen that one yet. Okay, it's lovely. It's a fantastic film. Mm. But I think for me, it was like, I realised how much as filmmakers we have to sacrifice, including being away from our family. Mm. So she's getting to spend time with her family um, and her children and it's it's just that gosh you know she's had an incredible experience teaching them about their upbringing and their family and how amazing that is and they've done activities together and for me it's kind of a realization as a costume designer when you are filming away from home that is what you're missing very true yeah there, there's some really um like Maggie Gyllenhaal's got a film in that as well which is great um oh yeah yeah so I'm, I'm just getting through them slowly but that one was that was a great one that I wanted to shout out Grace, um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really brilliant chat. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. No I problem. I waffled on too much. Not at all. We're literally <laughs> on, on the hour. <laughs> thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can peruse the entire archive on iTunes, Spotify and Acast. If you're interested in costume design, allow me to point you in the direction of my interview with Ruka Johnson. In the meantime, have a great week. Mm-hmm.